Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 118 for the second half of the September and October months of 2014. The topic I'm going to talk about today is whether Mars can ever appear as large as the moon in Earth's sky. This claim makes the rounds almost every August. It used to be a chain rumor passed along through email or on various IRC chats, newsgroups, and dubious websites, and more recently it's taken to Facebook. One of the more recent versions from August of 2014 reads, See Mars as large as the full moon on 27th August 2014. Should be spectacular, truly a once-in-a-lifetime experience. The versions of the claim collected by Snopes.com seem to be getting shorter as the claim ages. That one was only three sentences. Back in 2007, the claim was longer. Quote, Two moons on 27 August. 27th Aug, the whole world is waiting for. Planet Mars will be the brightest in the night sky starting August. A little repetitive. It will look as large as the full moon to the naked eye. This will cultivate on August 27th, when Mars comes within 34.65 million miles of Earth. Be sure to watch the sky on August 27th, 12.30 a.m. It will look like the Earth has two moons. The next time Mars may come this close is in 2287. Share this with your friends, as no one alive today will ever see it again. End quote. Chances are, most of you listening to my docile tones, or reading the transcript so you can't hear my docile tones, have seen or heard this claim. Maybe a friend has sent it to you. Maybe a relative. In 2009, my great-aunt Esther, I know it's a common name, but yes, my great-aunt Esther, sent it to me in an email blast that included other family members and friends of hers. I had to let her down easily because, as I'll explain over the next 10 to 20 minutes or so, this has been a hoax ever since 2003. To understand what's going on and the origins of the claim, we need two pieces of background information. The first is planetary orbits. In the spirit of my return to podcasting and a return to some of my roots, this part relies on one of the main sponsors of this podcast, Johannes Kepler. Kepler, in the early 1600s, using data very carefully gathered by Tycho Brahe, derived his three laws of planetary motion. Kepler's first law, or K1, as we often abbreviate it in introductory astronomy, simply states that the orbit of a planet is an ellipse with the Sun at one of the two foci, or foci. Revolutionary for its time, it's generally taken for granted that quote-unquote everyone knows this today, except for the geocentrists. What this simply means is that the Sun is near the center of a planet's orbit, and a planet's orbit can be any form of an ellipse. If the closest distance the planet gets to the Sun is the same as its farthest distance, then the planet is on a special form of an elliptical orbit, a circle. All circles are ellipses, not all ellipses are circles. The closest a planet gets to the Sun is called its perihelion, where you can think of the para, P-E-R-I, for proximity. They both start with P, and helion means the Sun, or helio. The farthest a planet gets from the Sun is its aphelion, A-P, and then helion again. You can remember this by thinking of the A as away, and again helion meaning the Sun. I'm going to be using these terms a lot more in a few minutes. K1 
Kepler's second law, or K2, states that a planet sweeps out an equal area in equal time along its orbit. This equal area refers to a triangle with one point where the planet is going to start in this arbitrary time period, one point on the Sun, and one point where the planet is going to end in its orbit after a certain period of time. If the planet is closer to the Sun, because those lines connecting the planet's starting and ending point to the Sun are shorter, then the planet has to move faster to sweep out an equal area than when it's farther away from the Sun. That's why comets spend most of their time far away from the Sun. They're simply traveling much, much more slowly the farther away they are. Kepler's third law, or K3, states that the square of a planet's year is proportional to the cube of the semi-major axis of its orbit, where the semi-major axis is the long axis of the ellipse divided by 2. Otherwise, it would be the major axis. Put more simply for the purposes of this episode, because I'm sure I've lost some people, a planet has a longer year, it takes more time to go around the sun, the farther from the sun it is. This is not only because it has a bigger distance to travel in its orbit, but it also moves more slowly. To recap, Kepler gave us three laws of planetary motion. Planets travel in ellipses, which could include a circle. Planets move faster the closer they are to the sun in their orbit. And planets have a longer year the farther they are from the sun. Putting these together, consider Earth and Mars. Mars is farther away from the Sun than Earth, so it moves more slowly in its orbit, and it takes longer to go around the Sun, making one year in about 1.9 Earth years. If Mars and Earth were on perfectly circular orbits, as in, the closest and farthest distance that Earth gets to the Sun is the same, and the closest and farthest distance Mars gets to the Sun is the same, but they're still on their own separate orbits where Mars is farther away from the Sun, then the closest and farthest distance that Earth and Mars get from each other wouldn't vary from year to year. It would be the same. The closest would be when they're aligned, as in the Sun, then the Earth, then Mars along a straight line, so they're on the same side of the Sun. The farthest they would be is when one of the planets is on the opposite side of the Sun, such that if you were to look down or up on the solar system, you could draw a straight line from Earth through the Sun all the way to Mars. This is a somewhat basic kind of concept. It's fairly basic material, but I want to slowly build this case. And there are still some people who have trouble understanding that even if Earth and Mars were on perfect circles about the Sun, the distance between them would still change significantly. In fact, that misconception has made it into several books. With that in mind, we can introduce the fact that Earth and Mars, and no planet, is actually on a perfect circle around the Sun. They are on non-circular ellipses, with the closest distance, perihelion, and the farthest distance, aphelion, being different numbers. Also, the long axes of their ellipses, their elliptical orbits, are not in the same direction. And they move over time because of the influence of other planets' gravity, especially Jupiter's gravity on Mars. And Jupiter's gravity will change the ellipticity of Mars' orbit over periods of tens of thousands of years. But we're going to ignore that for this particular discussion. What does this mean for their closeness? Well, it still means that the closest they could ever possibly ever get is when it just so happens that Earth's aphelion corresponds to when Mars is at perihelion. And you can draw a straight line from the Sun out through Earth 
all the way to Mars. So Mars would appear opposite the sun in Earth's sky, so you'd see Mars best at midnight. Conveniently, this is when Mars is going to be called at opposition, because it's opposite the sun. But you might expect from how I've been building this up that this phenomenon very rarely happens. You, It's really, really hard to get those ellipses to be perfectly aligned, because they're not. You have to get the elliptical orbits which process to be properly aligned. You also have to have Earth at its farthest point happen to be at the same time when Mars is at its closest point. And Mars is going to move more quickly when it's at that point, giving you a smaller window of time. With that in mind, let's tuck that information away and get to the next piece of background information, the apparent sizes of objects in the sky. In everyday life, assuming that you have two well-functioning eyes, or your visio normal, perhaps, you have a general sense of how big common objects are, even if they're not the same distance away from you. For example, I live in the mountains of Colorado, and when I go outside and see my car, it looks bigger than my neighbor's house a mile away. But I know that my car isn't really bigger. It just looks that way because it's a lot closer. It has a larger apparent size. We measure apparent size in angles. The car fills more of my field of view. It's a larger angle than the house. It's only by knowing or approximating the distance to the car and the house that I can convert that angular size to real physical size. My brain does that for me because of parallax between my two eyes and because of prior experience. It can practically instantly realize that the distance to the car is much less than the distance to the house, and it can also use prior experience that cars are rarely larger than houses to inform me that the car is closer and not as big as the distant house. This is not the case for objects in the sky, and this was the entire subject of episode 2 of the podcast. For purposes of this episode, what's important is how big objects appear in the sky given their distance. Normally, you have to use trigonometry to figure out how big an object is, or how distant it is, or how big it will appear given any two of those pieces of information. So you have three possible numbers. How big it is physically, how distant it is physically, or how big it appears. If you know two of those, you can figure out the third. If you only know one of those, you can't figure out the other two. For example, if I tell you how far away the moon is and its diameter, then you can use trigonometry to figure out how big it will appear in the sky. We can simplify this by using something called the small angle approximation. This means that for small angles, like how big astronomical objects appear in the sky, you can actually drop the trigonometry part of the problem. You don't have to use trig. So the size of the object appears is linearly related to how big it is and how far away it is. Now, I know that I've lost a lot of you, so let me explain by way of example, and hopefully it will be much, much more clear. I have an apple. I tell you that it is 10 meters away, and it's 10 centimeters in diameter. You do some math, and you come up with an angular size, how big it will appear. The actual number isn't important because I want you to compare it to a watermelon. I hold a watermelon 50 meters away, instead of 10, and I tell you that it's 50 centimeters in diameter, as opposed to 10 centimeters. How big is the watermelon going to appear to you relative to the apple? Now you might think again that you're going to have to calculate the size the apple is going to appear and the size the watermelon is going to appear, but you don't, because of the small angle approximation. 
All you have to do is use simple ratios. The watermelon is five times farther away, but it's five times bigger, so the five cancels out the five, and it will appear the same size. Yes, that's why I went through the last two minutes or so droning on about math to explain how simple this ends up getting. Another example. I have a building. It's 100 meters high and one kilometer away. Another building, 300 meters high and half a kilometer away. So you have a ratio of 1 to 3 for size and 1 to 2 for distance. Multiply them together, and the second building will appear six times larger to you, because it's three times the size and twice as close. This brings us back to whether Mars can ever appear as large as the moon in Earth's sky. To quote Phil Plate, no, just no. Let's assume perfect conditions. Earth is at aphelion when Mars is at perihelion, and this happens when Earth is directly between Mars and the Sun, or Mars is at opposition. Ideal conditions, and this is going to be the biggest that Mars can ever, ever appear, at least given its current orbital parameters. Distance to Mars in this case is 54.6 million kilometers, or 33.9 million miles. Mars is 6,792 kilometers across, or 4,220 miles in diameter. Meanwhile, the average distance between the Moon and Earth is about 384,000 kilometers, or 239,000 miles. The Moon's diameter, 3,474 kilometers, or 2,159 miles. Lots of numbers, let's simplify it. Mars' closest approach takes it about 140 times farther away from Earth than the Moon. The Moon is about half the diameter of Mars. Multiplying these together, the largest that Mars could ever appear in Earth's sky is about 1 70th the diameter of the Moon. You just take the 140 times farther away and divide by 2, the ratio of the diameters, to get that 1 70th number. And that's it. That's basic math. Basic sizes for these objects, basic principles of orbits figured out over the last 400 basic years. For Mars to appear as large as the Moon in Earth's sky, it would need to either be 70 times larger than it currently is, and note that Jupiter is about 20 times the diameter of Mars, so Mars would need to be about 3.5 times larger across than Jupiter, or Mars would somehow need to come as close to Earth as just twice the Earth-Moon distance. And so, we get to the question of how did this claim even ever get started? Well, it did have a legitimate past. Back in August of 2003, Earth and Mars were very, very close to those ideal circumstances where Earth was at aphelion, Mars was at perihelion, and this happened when Mars was at opposition. Almost. Very, very, very close to that perfect situation. The distance between them on August 27th, 28th of 2003 was only 55.8 million kilometers, or 34.6 million miles. That's just 1.2 million kilometers, or 0.7 million miles, shy of the closest they can ever get. This was the closest they had gotten in 59,619 years, and it was widely touted in the media. I used to work at a grocery store in high school, and I actually remember going back while on summer break during college that year and explaining to some of my former co-workers who were friends late at night when there weren't any customers other than myself what was going on and why this was a big deal. I used rubber bands to explain the orbits because they were asking me about it, what it all meant, and why the news media was hyping it up. 
That completely superfluous anecdote aside, the point is that it was very, very widespread. And most people knew about it, people who had no real prior interest in astronomy. Never mind that two years earlier, they had been separated by only 7.2 million kilometers more when at their closest. On July 31st of 2018, they'll be 57.7 million kilometers apart, so just 1.9 million kilometers farther apart than they were in 2003. Again, on September 11th of 2035, it'll be 1.3 million kilometers farther apart than 2003. That's closer than they'll be in 2018. But I digress, and these dates will be linked in the show notes. The point is that this isn't incredibly rare. It's just an extra few million miles, but it's still something to be interested in and to use to hype up interest in space exploration and get people out there and looking at the sky. The point also is that the original email going around at the time was even longer than its 2007 variant. Quote, The red planet is about to be spectacular. This month and next, Earth is catching up with Mars in an encounter that will culminate in the closest approach between the two planets in recorded history. The next time Mars may come this close is in 2287. Due to the way Jupiter's gravity tugs on Mars and perturbs its orbit, astronomers can only be certain that Mars has not come this close to Earth in the last 5,000 years, but it may be as long as 60,000 years before it happens again. The encounter will culminate on August 27th when Mars comes within 34,649,589 miles of Earth and will be, next to the Moon, the brightest object in the night sky. It will attain a magnitude of negative 2.9 and will appear 55.11 arc seconds wide. At a modest 75 power magnification, Mars will look as large as the full moon to the naked eye. Mars will be easy to spot. At the beginning of August, it will rise in the east at 10 p.m. and reach its azimuth at about 3 a.m. By the end of August, when the two planets are closest, Mars will rise at nightfall and reach its highest point in the sky at 12.30 a.m. That's pretty convenient to see, something that no human being has seen in recorded history. So mark your calendar at the beginning of August to see Mars grow progressively brighter and brighter throughout the month. Share this with your children and grandchildren. No one alive today will ever see this again. End quote. Some of this message is true. Some of it's false. Some of it is true, but highly misleading. One thing that's not quite true, or at least uses wrong terminology, is that whole azimuth thing at 3 a.m. Azimuth just happens to be the direction across your horizon, so sort of like east to west kind of thing. Uh, so saying it reaches its azimuth at about 3 a.m. is exactly like saying this ship is going to reach its longitude at 3 a.m. In other words, it, without a number there, it's absolutely meaningless. Uh, anyway, the most false part of it besides terminology is that whole thing about astronomers not knowing if or when this will happen again or have happened before due to Jupiter's gravitational perturbations on Mars' orbit. I mentioned this earlier, and it's true that over the very, very long term, as in tens to hundreds of millions of years, our computer models become chaotic, and we can't predict things at that fine a resolution. But tens of thousands? No problem. 
The misleading part, and the part that was almost immediately dropped from this email or that people ignored, is that whole line, at a modest 75 power magnification, Mars will look as large as the full moon to the naked eye. Remember the math we did earlier, or maths if you're British? Mars, at 140 times farther away, but two times the diameter of the moon, will be 170th the size. So, if you're using a telescope that magnifies things by about 70, and you look at Mars, sure, Mars will appear to be about the same size to your eye as the moon would appear without a telescope. But this is also kind of a nonsensical comparison, unless you have one eye peering in through a telescope at Mars, and the other eye aimed in a different direction looking at the moon. Perhaps because of that very confusing sentence, which even for me, and I know what it was trying to say, is very, very difficult to understand, this whole big Mars hoax thing was born. And ever since then, every late July to August, the big Mars hoax gets sent around the internet. By this point, more than 11 years later, it's as predictable, if not more so, than a meteor shower, and it's met with an eye roll by skeptics and astronomers. I think that people tend to be well-meaning by sending this along, and I know for certain that my great-aunt was pretty embarrassed, but thankful that I had corrected her, and it also gave her a chance to show off her great-nephew's smarts to her friends. I certainly don't attribute malice or willful deceit on the part of people who spread this these days, unlike many of the topics that I discuss on this podcast. But by this point, most people do know that it's a hoax, or at best a gross misunderstanding of what's going on, but there are still people out there who believe it. Phil Plates covered it, NASA's covered it, Wikipedia's covered it, Space.com has covered it, Universe Today has covered it, IFL Science has covered it, and even the Reality Check podcast has covered it, as I recently found when listening to Back Archives, and now I've covered it. I really hope that the real explanation is starting to reach critical mass, if not already past critical mass. But I do worry. In just four short years, Mars and Earth will be very, very close together again. And while you might call me a pessimist, I have a hunch that we might see a surge in these chain emails come the lead-up to July 31st, 2018. Obviously, there's been a lot of email, a lot of feedback, a lot of other stuff that I've yet to catch up on as I slowly start to emerge from the crazy, crazy busy part of the year. I'm hoping that I'm now going to be back on a somewhat regular schedule with this podcast, turning out about two episodes a month, one on the 1st and one on the 16th, sort of returning to what I think I was doing, I think roughly two years ago, uh, before I went to four times a month, which I have no idea how I did, and then went to three times a month. So, you can expect another episode on or about November 1st, and then on or about November 16th, and uh, hopefully it will be continued to be regular after that. Uh, So, with that in mind, don't forget that you can find me online at podcast.sjrdesign.net, and you can also find me on Facebook under Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy. The Facebook page for the podcast is almost 
sort of, kind of, up to 500 likes. It'd be really cool if we could surpass that by the end of the year. And I started to post more um, what I consider interesting news stories to the Facebook page for the podcast, such as, for example... There was a recent announcement that NASA, uh, using the Hubble Space Telescope, scientists have finally, finally found a candidate Kuiper Belt object for the New Horizons spacecraft visit once it passes Pluto next year. Uh, Closest approach to Pluto is July 15th. I'm going to be very busy around that date, uh, so I'll probably have to pre-record a podcast, and that also does mean that I will almost certainly not be at TAM next year, just because... I'm involved with the New Horizons mission now, and with closest approach, right at about the time of TAM, uh, ain't gonna happen. Otherwise, uh, you can also find me personally on Twitter as Dr, as in D-R, Astro Stew, or the podcast on Twitter as Pseudo Astro. So with that in mind, I, as I said, do hope that I'm returning to a regular schedule. I do kind of miss doing the podcast. And as always, I do appreciate the feedback, the constructive feedback, uh, not so much the spam and yelling feedback, not that I get that too much. But otherwise, thanks for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed the show. That wraps up this topic for the 118th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about the podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website, or you can send an email directly to podcast at sjrdesign.net. Just turn the dot to an at sign pretty easy. You can also leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website, leave a comment on the blog post for the episode, or on the Facebook page for the podcast, and you can even tweet me, at pseudoastro. I do read every message and appreciate the feedback and have a folder of over 100 emails to get back to. If you do have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. Also, please write a review and rate the podcast on iTunes or your podcast website or service of choice. If you liked it, tell friends. Tell family, tell frenemies, tell random people, post on internet forums, wear sandwich boards, all that other fun stuff. 